0: Uh, So hey, everybody, we're back on an episode of Insiders today with Keith Jopling. Uh, Hey, Keith.
1: Hey, David, how are you? Uh,
0: Very well, thanks. Um, So I'm going to introduce you a little bit and you're truly an insider. Uh, You were uh, running global research for the IFPI until 2006. Um, You then worked for EMI and the BPI uh, amongst other companies as a consultant, always doing research and insights. And you ended up running until two years ago, the, your role was global head of strategic intelligence. And we'll get back into what that meant, what that means, uh, which is essentially leading uh, the teams inside and outside facing to use uh, data, building products, but also uh, improving the company's performances. Uh, you left Spotify two years ago, and you're currently uh, the consulting director for media research. Media, for the people who don't know, is by far the leading uh, independent research entity in the music uh, industry and their research pieces, um, some of them you write are are just truly amazing. Um, the last initiatives you launched is something called the Song Sommelier and we'll talk about it towards the end of the program and we'll also link to it uh, so everybody can kind of discover the music that you're showcasing. Uh, so yeah, hey Keith, uh, great to have you on, uh, on the program.
1: It's great to be here, nice introduction. That's, it's brilliant the way you condensed uh, what is effectively 20 years into just two minutes there. I wish I could do that. Is it great or is it brutal? Uh, no, it's great. I think it's absolutely great. I mean, there was to expand on a couple of things. So, in between Spotify and Midia, I, I did spend a year at Sony Music as well. That's true. Uh, working for their playlist team, their analytics playlist team. Uh, and also for global digital business as a, a strategic advisor to, to that group. So it's nice to have a little space in in, in a corpora at, at this particular time in the industry. It was 12 to 15 months, and I still do a little bit of work with, with Sony Music as well.
0: Um, so actually, when I was preparing the interview, I tried to scroll all the way down on your <laughs> LinkedIn profile, and I saw that you had worked at Novartis, the so some of you who don't know, it's a gigantic yeah. pharmaceutical uh, conglomerate who merged and acquired a bunch of other conglomerates. Uh, so just to go back in time, can you uh, explain to me how did you start to do research um, and insights and how did you end up in the music industry? Um, was pharmaceutical your initial path or was it more uh, um, something you wanted to try along the way?
1: Uh, I'm, I believe in serendipity. This will be a theme throughout the conversation. Um, so I, I tend to follow what look to me to be good opportunities at the time. I'm a great believer in serendipity and, and chance. Uh, and I, to some extent, making those opportunities as you, as you go along as well. So I had no intention of uh, really having a career in the music industry. Uh, uh, if I'd have thought about it, I probably would have done it from the start, but I just never considered it to be a serious uh, job, if you like. So when I left, I did business, uh, business, at, uh, a business school in Birmingham uh, in the UK. Uh, when I left there, I actually became a, a management consultant for Accenture, back in the early days of, very early days of Accenture, um, doing pretty serious stuff, you know, like coding huge computer programs in for power stations and uh, electricity and water businesses and stuff. It was like really heavy-going stuff. Um, and I got out of that, I went into a small public policy boutique consultancy that did a lot of work in healthcare. So I was in that organization for three or four years, and... Uh, we were really pitching work to the pharmaceuticals industry and then I I was poached by Novartis. So, and that's the first time I really did researchy stuff because before that, it had been um, some analytics but more consulting programs. Um, But with Novartis, I joined their insight teams. I had a team of six people across the business looking at um, both um, over-the-counter or like, you like, everyday uh, general practice uh, drugs, and then some more serious stuff that would go through the hospital system. And it was great fun. It was amazing, because having had having been trained in consultancy, I was able to kind of bring that approach to in, inside a company, sort of run things as projects, get things done much faster, do more internally, so we, we outsourced a lot less. We could just do it ourselves. Uh, and it was the whole piece. It was, you know, it, it was... Uh, tapping into the insights, it was commissioning the research, it was running some of the data programs, doing the forecasts. Uh, yeah, it was, it was great. It was great fun. I would have probably stayed there had I not seen uh, a, jo- a job advert for the IFPI just at a conference. I just picked it up and read it and thought, I'll do that instead. And it, it well, worked out.
0: I was going to ask you, how, how was the switch? How did you make the switch? So you were literally at a conference and you saw something from the IFPI and you figured why not? And it ended up uh, becoming a 20-year path for you
1: Yeah, uh, absolutely because I wouldn't have thought that I could ever switch into entertainment uh, But I just saw literally it was a copy of the FT. I remember it was the jobs page of the FT someone had left it on the chair in front of me at this conference and uh, It just said something like uh, senior researcher Even then I didn't think I would get the job but there there was some small print right at the bottom of the ad that said, you know, we're looking for people from other IP backgrounds, including publishing, blah, 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 pharmaceuticals. So it was almost like that was, that that job had my name on it, really. That's what it felt like. Uh, So I mean, I went through a fair process to get it, but in the end, um, yeah, they offered it to me, and then I've been in the industry on and off ever since, mostly on.
0: How, so it's, I mean, you 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 were at the FBI until two thousand and six but ran the research for six years so we're talking you entering in the into two thousand um and you had the um, you know you, you knew how it worked in pharmaceutical where you know the budgets are much different um how was it working at insights so early in music what was the structure were the methods completely archaic did you end up finding things that you thought oh people are actually doing things well uh was it really the beginning of of everything um how was the
1: switch? I think it probably was pretty much the beginning of everything, because um, I'd come from Pharma, where we had, at any one time, we had three or four major databases where you could see, uh, you could see your your pipeline sales, you could see your immediate sell through of any drug line by week or by month by channel. Um, so you know, not real time, but some some pretty cool data in terms of you know managing demand, if you like. And I remember in my interview for the IFBI, so I was interviewed by Jay Berman, who's uh, an industry legend. Um, he still consults in the business. Uh, he was the chairman and CEO at the time. I remember walking him through my vision for the data, and I was like, we can turn this into online analytical processing tools where we can offer this to um uh, you know, the, the members in, in the record labels where they can click and drag and do the analysis, he was like, you're not going to do any of that. You know, he's just like, that, that is not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> I just need somebody to improve what we have. And, and that's basic. so it was pretty basic. You know, it, we produced the yearbook um, and and the first two years was improving the publications but cleaning up the data. So, uh, and that was a lot of work. So we did in the end, drag that data into a Microsoft uh, analytics platform where we could do basic analysis and we could do the click and drag stuff in the team and that we would we would be able to handle queries much much quicker on behalf of the members. And in the end, we actually put a, a, a front end on it and we were able to put it in front of the members as well. So that was two or three years work. And then uh, on top of that, Uh, We did, you know, we we started publishing market shares. That was a ton of work. Any new format that came along, so measuring music video, we had to go through the process of setting up the definitions with the labels, getting labels to produce data, getting national groups to produce data, getting them to do it in a more self-serve fashion so that they could enter the data straight into the system. We could verify it, you know, all kinds of checks and balances. But the major changes were... I think probably about three years into it, uh, I I had this vision that, this is probably the best legacy I left the IFPI at the time. I could see that the retail side of the business was only gonna go one way, which was down, right? So it was CDs being discounted. Um, We had all kinds of issues with, with, with pricing as well as sales just going south. But on the other hand, the licensing business was looking like at some point it would pick up. So you were licensing to Microsoft, Apple, uh, the, the licensing side of the business from a sync point of view, all of this stuff where the business was becoming like a trade rather than a, a, a product retail business. So we flipped the whole thing from, from measuring retail value, which was something around, from memory, maybe around $20 billion, we overnight changed it to measuring the trade value of the business, which meant that it was it was right down to like 12 or 13 billion dollars, which was a very controversial uh, meeting with the heads of the labels. It went to a vote in the end. It went to a vote and it was, it was like being in court. It was like a majority vote. There were 11 members of the board, nine voted to do it and two voted against. I'm not gonna say who voted against, but at that point the industry decided we can demonstrate we're a growing business by uh, presenting everything we do as a, on a trade basis rather than these kind of dodgy retail numbers because no one really knew the price anyway.
0: Yeah, and I guess also at one point when you realize the market is going a certain way, changing the way you audit it and the way you index it allows for everybody to look in the future rather than looking behind um, and creating a new index, accepting that the overall value would have been facing, the world would have seen it as facing a lower value, but actually looking at it as a trade market from that day onward uh, is a huge change. If you, you know, you you are what you measure and you improve what you measure. So I guess if you measure the wrong things uh, and if you're looking at the wrong things, then you, you're you just kind of looking at the past. Um, very yeah. interesting. I, I, um, I want to kind of uh, jump because I wanted to leave a lot of time for... Uh, something that we'll get to uh, a little bit after. You, So you end up arriving at, at Spotify, I'm kind of making a little bit of a, of a leap there. You end up arriving at Spotify pre-IPO in 2015. Uh, in 2015, I think it was the company that everybody had the most question about. Today, that my company might be TikTok because nobody really understands it. But 2015 yeah. to 17 is literally the explosion of Spotify, became a complete household name, basically globally. Um, and it's, you know, it's basically just pre IPO, um, your role had very broad implication at the company. Um, you know, from the title being global head of strategic intelligence, um, can you tell us a little bit about what it was working at the company? How did you arrive there? Uh, and some of the accomplishments between 2015 and 17 that you guys did, um, kind of around your role, of course.
1: Yeah, sure. So. Yeah, I started off consulting with Spotify. So in 2015, at the end of the summer, I think they, uh, Apple Music had launched. I think Apple Music launched that summer, I think. Um, and there were competitors coming into the market They were getting a little worried because they were on the cusp of this uh, hyper growth. I think they probably had just stepped into hyper growth. Um, but you know, at that point, the whole thing could have been nipped in the bud by competitors. They're like really serious competitors. Right? I mean, maybe you wouldn't have been so worried uh, or, you know, Daniel Eck wouldn't have been so worried if if it hadn't have been Apple, Amazon, um, Pandora in the U.S., of course, Um coming into the space, and also SoundCloud flipping its business from what it was to being effectively a premium subscription business. So you had three or four major competitors coming in, and they weren't sure whether that was just going to stop them in the tracks or whether it was nothing to worry about. And So I joined as a consultant. I did three months analyzing the competitive space, and basically at the end of that three months, my conclusion was you have nothing to worry about. Uh, you know, for, for a variety of reasons, these may be the biggest brands on the planet, but they have just not got their shit together in terms of the audience, the product, the proposition, uh, they're either transitioning from something else. It's going to take a long time. So there was a window of opportunity to just step into hyper growth, just step on the gas and move forward. So following that, I, I mean, I think they we were impressed enough by that work and that view to then offer me a role. So then I spec'd out my own role. Um, and it was, that's always nice. Yeah, it's great. Well, it's, it's, a, it's actually a bit of a double edged sword, right? Cause if you write okay. your own job spec, it's, it's your perception of what you think is needed. And I think looking back on it, what I would, if I'd have changed the, anything about joining Spotify at that time, I would have probably, before I even did that, I would have said to, you know, several stakeholders in the business, what is it that you really think? But yeah, you know, I did that when we got inside. Um, So I I created this job spec. I came on board with one person and then quickly hired another person. Um, And then we got together with another another team, which is the the corporate strategy team. We started to sort of do something a little bit different. So we continued with the competitive stuff. But what I really found was needed was that at the time Spotify had this, this it's a very ambitious company. And they could have gone in different directions to keep that growth. So they're always looking for what's next. Uh, which is the smart way of thinking. So, I mean, it's driven by essentially, I think, just one of the smartest people around. So, it, you know, it, it, it's very much in Daniel's uh, vision, the way that they keep growing the business. And he was always thinking, OK, what is next and how important is the timing? When it, When is the timing going to be right? And at that point, when you're in a hyper growth company like Spotify, you had a, Everybody doing the same doing the same work. So you'd find somebody in the product organization in in Stockholm doing research on podcasts. You'd then have somebody in New York in marketing doing research on podcasts, and of course coming up with slightly different a different take on things. And they had this system where you know it was a central bet system, which people know about now, where it was about gathering the insights, figuring out. Uh, what Spotify, where Spotify could play and how quickly they could succeed. So a lot of it was to do that work differently and do it better, just bringing my experience to it, how you assess it, uh, an opportunity. Uh, you know, not boiling the ocean, like doing it at, at speed, doing it with a light touch but bringing frameworks to it. And we looked at – so we looked at – we did the early, early work on podcasts. We did the early work on the creator – um, the creator marketing. We also took another really hard look at music video. We took a hard look at voice, and the whole thing was about just uh, taking on radio through through the through the uh, ad tech. It was about assessing what's next. So what's next? How do we do it and when? Um, so and there was a big amount of coordination. So I think my personal challenge at Spotify was that. Uh, so I went into a business to do essentially an insight role. And, you know, at the time there was a marketing insights organization. There were, The data organization was was starting to grow hugely. So that's, you know, just the army of people looking at the data strategy and all of the internal behavioral analysis. There was a team team in New York doing that. There was a product insights group based out of Stockholm and New York doing a lot of insights the product design and what sits where on uh, you know on the on the real estate and how you know the color of how this looks and how that looks uh, there was uh, will pages economics team in there as well so they had like a lot of people having a different say on data and insights so i formed a network of those people and just basically started to try and um, have a get a dialogue going between us Get a process of how we would improve that system of bets, and just collaborating more on on stuff. So it was, it was nice to run that network because you know I was working with some amazing people.
0: Yeah, amazing people, and and every week there must have been new people arriving, <clears throat> companies scaling. Um, you mentioned like the a lot of the positive aspects about working in you know such a specific company in um a, in a, changing the the industry it's in. What are the, without getting into any like detail, but what are the challenges in working in such an organization? Between that and for example, Le Novartis, which is a much bigger company, but less of a growth company. There is something about mm-hmm. hyper growth that is brutal uh, for organization in terms of operations. Is there anything you can share in, in that, um, on that on that side?
1: Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it, 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 a lot of it depends on what kind of a person you are. Um, I think in my experience, I I found working in that hyper growth environment really challenging because I had previously either worked in a slow moving business or as a consultant in a business that's a little bit fucked up for whatever reason. Like the the reason they hire um, consultants as problem solvers is because they've got to fix something. You know, either we have to find growth quickly or we have to find profitability quickly or we need to understand this, this market better. And in a way, like that, if you do that kind of work, people listen because they need to know the answer. I think the challenge is in a company like Spotify between 2015 and now is that, um, and I I don't want this to come out wrong, but like for what I was doing, I did a lot of interesting work, but it didn't really make that much of a difference because whatever you did, if you woke up in the morning, you arrived at work, you'd sold another thousand subscriptions because the business had just started to basically uh, take off and multiply by itself. Um, So I don't think at that point, they probably didn't need um, so much insight, certainly around the the marketing and the brand, they probably didn't need that much insight on the product. And they probably had um, too many people with not enough data because they were still cleaning up all, all all of the data as well. Don't forget that. That was a two or three year track for Spotify to get all of that data lined up and in the right pools and with the right tools to draw on it to actually make decisions. So, I mean, my my advice, if you're working in a hyper growth company, get get where the growth is in the company. Because again, at Spotify, you know, there was a little, there was always a little bit of tension between those guys that built the product and the engineering side of it, and then the guys who were in the content side, who were doing the industry relations, doing the content marketing, kind of becoming like almost like a music company. That was a clash of cultures, and I, I think a challenge for both sides. Um, and I guess, you know, it's about if you're in a growth company, maybe it's better if you're in the part of the company that's actually driving the growth. Um, if you're kind of stuck between and you're trying to service both sides and all of that it can get frustrating. So, I, I, you know, it's it's difficult. I mean, I like to feel like my work is valued where, wherever I go. And I think uh, at Spotify, I feel like it was valued for its interest. And the style, the way we did it, and the way we communicated it. So everybody thought what we did was amazing and really super interesting. But I don't know if it changed so many decisions. Um, and, and a lot of that is timing. So I'm, you know, I'm proud that we did the early work on podcasting because that's that's become a thing for Spotify. And I think the genius of how they've moved into the space is all about timing. They could have done it five years ago. It would have been too early. Yeah. If they'd have done it now, it would have been too late. So the fact that they stepped in about a year ago and really, really pressed, you know, pressed hard on on that pedal, uh, they timed it just right.
0: Yeah, the podcast timing is is, is a great point. Um, I always thought at Spotify, like compared, to, and maybe not YouTube is going to be the same now, but because they have two businesses, they have the freemium, which is an ad tech business, uh, basically just selling ads, and then they have the subscription business. I always thought internally. Uh, if you if you frustrate people more in the freemium, they will convert more, so that's great for the subscription people. But then there is less people, you know, using the ad and relying on, and so that's bad for the ads people. And I always thought in yeah. such a fast-growing business, a subscription is making, you know, the lion's share, and an ad is not. And so it must. I'm thinking I don't know anybody who does that, but it must not be uh, easy to make yourself heard if you're running ads when subscription is like 90% of of the of, of the money.
1: Yeah, yeah, totally. I think the uh, the the guys in the ad side of the business know that they're in it for the long game. Um, so I mean, it's interesting you say because one of the first things I observed when I joined the business is the the forecasts for the ad side of the business were just hugely optimistic. Like, well, that's never going to happen. You, you know, in the next two years, it, it's not going to be twenty percent of your revenues. It's not going to be that huge uh, because the infrastructure isn't really there for for selling audio ads. And people are uh, there's already was such an established, if if really poor, um, audio ads business in radio. Like it's very it's due for disruption, but it's going to take maybe 10 years to get there. Um, So I I think that, again, one of the things I'm really proud of when we did the work on on that side of the business was just recalibrating the expectations a little bit and knowing that they're making an investment for really, really long term, which I, I think is going to bear fruit for, for Spotify in years to come. Uh,
0: so you mentioned radio and it's a great segue. Um, you wrote a piece on media. Um, it's bigger than a piece. It's, it's called five, um, what is it called? Five trends changing music marketing. Um, and, and so the, the first thing actually you mentioned is the linear decline, which is obviously consumption of radio and so forth. So what I wanted to do is just, um, uh, Read the, the five, and then potentially get your reaction on each. So, uh, the, the five trends are: one, managing linear decline; two, managing streaming economics and higher song volumes; um, three, managing post-album creativity, which is a fascinating one for me; fourth is managing a global local culture, and I think everybody can understand really what it means now with the with reggaeton and the Spotify launching in India and, and so forth. Um then there is managing music's value, uh, which is obviously highly important. we talked about monetization and then uh fan upsells um you know, and how money can be left on the table if um if artists are not trying to monetize all their way so taking kind of top to bottom um why is managing linear decline um a, a, a big trend or a big challenge uh, for the industry as a whole
1: uh, I think if you look at it in terms of um, first of all, if you look at the business as a whole, right? You've got a radio business that is worth, I don't know, is it still worth 50 billion dollars, some, something around that. So there's a huge chunk of value that you do not want to lose. Um, so it's a, it's a bit like, how is that business going to translate itself, to migrate to digital formats, and not lose that revenue? Or that revenue shifts over to the likes of Spotify and YouTube and some and still filters through to the rights organizations and the artists. Um, so I, I think that is a really important shift. If you're in those businesses, right, if you're in radio, um, what's interesting about that is where do you go from here? Like how do you maintain relevance, importance? Uh, how do you still make sure you're a key part of the culture, both in terms of what consumers listen to, but also how artists come through the system? And, you know, I've done some work with, with radio broadcasters, uh, uh, both at Media and beforehand. And we found primarily what what is an issue is just is maybe a lack of confidence. Like they feel like they're a bit battered and bruised by on-demand audio coming along and and, and big brands going with that. And they feel like they ought to start maybe copying what they do, so they they become more interested in data. They become more interested in playlists. They become interested in uh, things that they're not so good at. Uh, whereas if they really focus on things that they are good at, which is programming, um, bringing personality to it, you know, having uh, these brilliant curators that people trust, and um, Really exploring music as a as a cultural scene and, and, and growing an audience that way, they they can do more with that in these new environments than they feel they that, that they currently feel they can do. Uh, so you know my main mantra is for, for radio is to is to really step up, be more confident about what they do, and and, uh, and to feel like you know their lunch is not going to be eaten by the streaming platforms because that's not necessarily true. Uh, And I think that the industry itself is just going to have to figure out a way of recognizing that and play to those strengths.
0: It's interesting that you were talking about the the, the decline of radio and the the growth of of on demand. Um, Everybody talks about the growth of the industry, forgetting that radio is declining and that radio is part of the industry. So either it becomes a zero sum game where the decline of one balances the growth of the other it could all become yeah. a very positive game where everybody's growing and maybe radio just kind of stops declining or it could be a very negative moment where radio keeps declining and actually the growth of on-demand doesn't really take for that for that um for that loss um you mentioned radios uh, or media just trying to do things that they're not usually doing and um, I will link to it, but the YouTube channel of the BBC of BBC One is is uh, is amazing. They did uh, they do videos. They have you know the personality yeah. of the presenter. I think they have a huge subscriber count today, and it's becoming part of the radio strategy to go off platform. Um, yeah, just like Spotify is doing music festivals to go off platform in a way. Um, <laughs> so that's 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 interesting.
1: Yeah, you know, they start. They start... the thing is they start off from having. Um, more media to work with because they already have TV productions. It's such a big part of what a brand like the BBC does. Um, So in many ways, they start off with this joined up media where they can tell the stories across that medium, build those audiences across that media. Um, And that's still a big advantage because effectively that is what um, any brand is built on an app like Spotify, wants to do the opposite. Like at some point you've got to build your audience off that app. So that's when you get all the um, really interesting convergence of the competition. Uh, But yeah, I mean, old media's kind of already got all of those great production values and knows how to join the dots in terms of building audiences. Uh, And maybe
0: having trust and playing, they should play with their strength rather than trying to go for their weaknesses. I think that's what you're saying.
1: I'm a massive believer in that because one of the things that you find with strategy is that the grass is always greener on the other side. So there's a lot of envy, um, between businesses and leaders of businesses where they look on a a high growth business over there and they want some of that. Um, and you know, Spotify and Apple and, and, and Amazon, they suffer from that as well. Right. So, I mean, sometimes it's best to, um, you can certainly do that. You can look at how you move into a, a parallel business. That's absolutely great. What, when it gets dangerous is where you're diver- diversifying too much from your skill set because you have to leave behind what you're really good at. And then it, it just becomes a total mess. But I, I just want to mention on the competing side, one of the reasons why the industry needs to collaborate more. Uh, And this is on labels and publishers to drive this collaboration. So don't forget about radio. Don't leave it behind. Work with radio to build on its strengths because you're absolutely right what you said before. Probably the biggest competition that music faces is other formats. And we see that all the time with the analysis we do at Media. Video is eating up more time. Gaming is eating up more time. Social is eating up more time podcasts now will eat up more audio time from music uh, so you got to look at competition as being everything uh, that's how it works in in the attention economy right we all know that now it's about understanding what to do about it
0: yeah the Netflix um, the Netflix CEO is very vocal about the fact that his competition is not really the Disney plus or the others is any other type of entertainment uh, including like people going to Disneyland or something because whenever they are Disney yeah. they're not they're not physically in front of their TV, um, right. which, you know, it's
1: just, or sleep. Or, yeah. yeah. Well, and well. like,
0: it's basically brain time. Um, yeah. And that's a brutal world, but that really what it means is you're either listening to music or you're outside or you're eating food or you're talking to people and people are battling for brain time, which is the ultimate um, uh, goal. Um, all right. So uh, number two, um, managing streaming economics and higher song volumes. Um, let's go into it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, number two is a challenge for um, labels and artists, much more than it's a challenge for the platforms. So the platforms are fine with this, right? They can manage this through uh, stations, through playlists, and through increasing personalization. So the song volume they have solved. The supplier side is not that then does not have that solved because if you're an artist you're finding you're just competing with vastly more other artists for for, for songs and we've seen this with however many it is now 40,000 50,000 tracks a day I, I've lost count I, I think people yeah. quote these figures it's a lot it's too much and then as a label uh, obviously your challenges is, <clears throat> is economics so you don't know which ones to back you have to put money behind those tracks to grow them. That's that's their job, is, is to market those. And then you need to know what's working quickly. So which ones do you drop? Which ones do you pursue and, and persevere with? But most of all, you've got to keep getting more through, otherwise you're going to lose market share. Uh, so the whole thing needs um, some reassessment of how that's done because in the label system still, even though they are better, with the reactive stuff so they can see what's working and they tend to know whether to drop it or press a lever and see what else they can try. But essentially it's still a very human effort to market a track. And you need to buy into it, you need to um, really work it hard across all of these platforms you have, Um, and you need to stick with it and see, you know, which audience is gonna resonate, resonate with in which market around the world all of which is a human effort, which is very, very exhausting. So for me, of the next one, two, three years, I think the big success stories in music will be marketing technology. So that maybe this is an opportunity for sound charts, maybe it's an opportunity for the Features of M of this world or anyone that can give uh, a sense of automated tools with attribution that you can put more songs through the system, and you know what's working sooner, and you know which which songs you to invest in on the bigger scale because they're already working. So you're not going so you're going to waste less time, and waste less money, and that is a huge challenge for labels because they've previously been a quality over quantity operation. Now they have to be a quantity optimization type operation, and they still have to do the quality bit on top. So really interesting to see how the distribution players are going to be able to do this. The likes of AWOL and Cobalt, do they really have a, dif- a, a different story to tell because they're managing far more tracks across the, the, the base of, of their label? And how are the majors going to respond to it as well? Yeah,
0: with <clears throat> sorry, with, with song volume, um, I think everybody thinks right now it's you know growing as fast as it, it as it will. My bet is that in one, two or three years, there is a lot of, you know, and, and there's starting to be a lot of websites where you can literally just generate music copyright free and, and use it. Um, that is going to generate thousands and millions of songs, um, you know, with the whole copyright, like who does the song belong to in the end. But um, the, the volume of releases is going to keep growing exponentially for a few years and I wouldn't be surprised if we're talking about 200,000, 300,000, 500,000 tracks a day, uh, just because the effort it takes to make a song is close to zero. I'm not talking about quality of music and quality of the artist. I'm just talking about the matter, uh, music as a matter that you can just push through a pipeline. Um, and if a AI generating um, like music company just wants to, whenever it generates the song, to just through an API, automatically push it on the platform, uh, with one company, you could have thousands of songs a day because uh, the computing power that it takes is is is, is not a lot. Uh, there are so many AI uh, music companies right now starting to generate music on the fly, sometimes with a little bit of a UI for a user to play around with things. Um, there are so many, you know, third-party video content being taken down and monetized by the majors because they have real songs in it. People are just going to be able to generate the song. Put the video online and release the music the next day on the platforms. Um, yeah, volume is going to be a big problem. And, and I like your analysis saying the 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 platforms have figured it out. They know how to create music. And if you have a very very long tail song that is not supposed to surface, it will never get a thousand streams. And that's I'm sure 90% of the volume. But it's the supply side that that have that has a problem because none of the companies are structured. Even the big distributors that you know we work with and and we speak to. Uh, the CD Babies, the AWOL, the Believe, the TuneCore, their infrastructure is not... Uh, technically, they're built to release thousands of songs a day, but the human uh, working in the company are not at all working like uh, they have a portfolio of assets and every day they're looking at asset management. It's it's still basically listening to songs manually with ears and wondering, is this song good or not? And, and that doesn't work with the scale of, of releases. Um, all right, so I see... Absolutely. No, sorry. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, if you tried to do that, you wouldn't sleep, right? You'd just have no time yeah. left at all, and you still be able to to work with the volume. So it's it's too exhausting. Um.
0: All right. The third one, uh, which I I love, because I speak to a lot of artists who are themselves wondering what to do. Post album creativity. I always like I, I like the way you just saying post album like it's a thing, and we have to accept it. Uh, but yeah, uh, I read a stat that 73% of kids below 25 have never listened to an album the way the artist has meant for them to listen to it. Some crazy number like this, uh, which was mind-blowing. What do you think is going to happen for artists and for fans? How are people going to
1: listen to music? Uh, I, I think it's already happened because if you quote a stat like that, it just tells you that that whole audience has already changed behavior. Um, and it doesn't mean everybody, so I think uh, this is a, it's important because I, I'm not I'm the last person to to want to uh, talk about the death of albums and and all of that because uh, for a long time it was my preferred way of of enjoying music. It's not anymore, so uh, you know I've I've flipped, but many people in my demographic of my generation would will always stick with albums. There's always something about an album that's that's special. Um, and I think we'll always have that, but we'll just find that it's more and more niche. Just like vinyl became more and more niche and will always serve that niche. Um, so I think, you know, the song has become the thing. Obviously, video is really important. Uh, and I think both of those formats will be already are being augmented differently. So. The, the song is because it's been multiplied in various different ways. It's been remixed. Uh, it, it, we're seeing more acoustic versions, more uh, producer versions of, of every track. Um, so you get it out there in different formats. And then with video, we're, we're starting to see that as well. I think one of the, the things that we'll, we'll see more of is longer content video. Um which may encompass one or two songs. It may be like the form of an EP. It's just a way of artists telling the stories. Uh, and I think that's going to be important. I think it's going to work pretty well for um, platforms like YouTube. And uh, they're already stepping into you know, sponsoring documentaries and so on. Um, so I think documentaries, I think storytelling through that format. Uh, obviously behind the scenes, some live um, video as well um we've already seen uh, music movies really get to a scale we've never seen before and there's going to be lots of interest in uh, exploring catalogue in that way uh, and actually we're going to see some revival of albums as well because you'll see bands going back to remix albums and interpret them differently we've seen the beatles do it i think rem is doing it they will serve that generation of super fans who are interested in that content. So there's kind of more of everything, more competition. But in a post-album world, you've got so many different formats to work with. I think it's probably more exciting for artists than we think. Uh, and I think that most artists are going to celebrate the idea of stepping out of an album cycle where you kind of work on this thing for two or three years. And it is the thing that then is expected to last for the next two or three years. I mean, we've seen artists, they might have put Life and Soul into an album for two or three years. They drop it in two weeks. It's, nobody can remember it it even happened. Um, so I think we, we're going to see a lot more creativity around that, which is great. Yeah,
0: the, 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 we see that with song durations. I mean, there are albums that have three songs at six minutes and then nine songs at one and a half and, and two songs at three. Like the, the length of songs, there's a lot of papers about songs being shorter now than they were. But there's also a lot of people who still have you know, a couple of tracks that are very long. Uh, Flume released a mixtape earlier this year, made a 23-minute movie. So I, I guess that's exactly where you were going. It's an EP mixtape that is songs one after the other, a bit mixed. But the content that he released was one video of 30 minutes, essentially a mini-movie. Um, for, yeah. for fans, it's such a great way to discover music. And you know, you don't have the same experience on Spotify that you would have on YouTube as well. Um, so yeah, I'm completely with you. I think it's more, it's a bit more scary for uh, traditional companies who are trying to do a PL. I will give you X advance for Y album for Z length, and I will make alpha uh, revenue. Right now, it's like I'm going to give you advance for I don't know how many songs. We're going to release songs in a kind of cadence. We're going to be almost always on, and then maybe we'll do this album kind of compilation at the end. Uh, the super fans might love it. Some people might not even know it's out. Um, you have artists like Kanye who are very album because each album is a concept and the thing he just released had to be an album, uh, because it's such a global media moment. So, yeah, I agree with you very, it's a challenge, but in a way I think creatively it will be a, it will be a positive situation for a lot of artists. Um, all right. Another one that I like a lot because of my Frenchness, um, the global local culture how do you manage music marketing and music uh, development in a global world that is actually extremely local? Um, Interesting to get your take on
1: that. Yeah, it's, I mean, hip hop is is the classic example, I think. Hip hop, Latin for sure. But if you take hip hop, for me, that's, uh, that's classic because you know, you got all these hip hop and urban artists coming through local labels, and you know, I think it's different now. But I, I think people are getting their heads around it. But if if you're a hip hop artist coming through a U.S. or a U.K. label, um, uh, the natural reaction of your of your label is to try and export you globally. That's what they've always done with pop, rock, whatever came before. But these days, it doesn't really necessarily have to travel if you're in that genre, because it's the scene that travels, right? So you, you definitely grime, hip hop, drill, all of this stuff has travelled, but it's come up through local artists. So you know, it's definitely happening, obviously in France, uh, in Germany, and I mean, all over Europe, also Latin America. Uh, let's see what happens in in Asia for for that repertoire, but it's it's you're it's the scene that's exported globally Not necessarily the, the artist yeah. yeah, it's the culture and the And, and in fact the, the sort of culture is is also global, but it's a, it's a local interpretation because they're talking about local issues national issues political issues uh, Social issues. It's almost like it's very much protest music and um, so all of that, for me, I think, is is fascinating because it is then about how um, labels and management, level, right? So uh, you know, they're starting to uh, they're going to need to collaborate faster. They need to be able to uh, not have uh, not be incentivized to be uh, you know always breaking an artist in one market and then expecting local smaller markets around the world to just take that artist and push them. If something's popping in that market, maybe there's some best practice that can be learned. Maybe there's more global levers that can be pulled through things like Facebook, YouTube, playlist marketing and so on. So all of that is just, we're going to require a change in terms of the way, uh, organizations like labels have always done things and how they think Uh, so in a a way they have to be global but really really nimble to what's going on locally so that's a bit like how multinationals have been working for years in FMCG again pharmaceuticals Um, have to be super organized
0: yeah the the thing you mentioned about hip-hop is so true the in some markets in the world, there is a quota on radio like you cannot play less than 50 percent of French language music on the radio to like protect artistic culture. And there is no quota on streaming, but it's also because a lot of it is on demand. So you can't force people to listen to 50 percent French music. That would be a horrible <laughs> user behavior in the product. <laughs> Um, but actually they realized that, uh, in, if you look at the top charts on Deezer, Spotify and stuff, it's basically local hip hop. I mean, of course, when Drake releases an album, he's one to 20 for a week and everybody's pushed down 20 slots, uh, same yeah. thing with Taylor Swift does it, but actually there's a lot of local, um, uh, urban, urban music, hip hop, drill trap, whatever the local genre uh, that is just taking over the local charts. And it's the same thing in Germany and, and other markets. It, it used to be that. Um, you know, American music would would dominate, uh, and and today it's 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 kind of a counterintuitive thing. But if I give you the chance of listening to any music in the world on demand, when you search, you will actually use local stuff, and maybe on playlist and algorithmic and recommendation and. You know, you will hear about international stuff, but your daily life at, you know, in your high school, when you talk to your friends is going to be about that verse that is talking about that politician or that, you know, cultural moment in your country. And in that hip hop is very, very local. It's you're right. It's completely global culture. Everybody kind of dresses the same and stuff, uh, but very, very local. And even today, like artists like Little Tekka, who is massive in America, is not known here. I mean, people would know Ransom, the song. But I don't think he would sell out 2000 tickets in France, uh, which wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. If you were the little Teca size act in Interscope or Republic, whoever has him now, you would be huge in France. That's just like there wouldn't be any any problem. Uh, yeah. um, all right. Um, we're getting to the end. Um, one of the trends was managing music's value. And I guess we kind of talked about it as a thread on the previous point. Um, yeah. How do you see the value of music uh, evolving? So the uh, oh my God, that's a,
1: that, that's the biggest challenge, uh, without a doubt. Uh, I thought that Stephen Cooper's comments the other day were really interesting. So the the head of Warner was saying that if the, if the, if you would go back in time and look at when streaming first, the streaming deal was first done, would you do the whole catalog nine ninety nine? You know. Uh, convergent one-type deal uh, because that doesn't exist in other media forms it doesn't exist in games it doesn't exist in video it's it's very unique to music and I think at the time it was seen to be uh, kind of groundbreaking for, for music like it, many people in the video world want the same thing but they're never gonna get it because it doesn't work too well for the business um, in fact, we're seeing the opposite, right? We're about to see three or four huge global uh, video streaming services launch again.
0: With exclusivity uh, each time, so nobody has the full catalog, yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have to make the choice, which two or three am I going to subscribe to? And, uh, and you know, it's going to be a diff- very different picture in different markets. Uh, and I think... Um, Stephen Cooper's point was if we'd have started off that way, maybe now we'd have more value in the industry. So if you'd have sliced and diced it some, or somehow differently by genre or maybe by frontline line catalog, um, then you might have a different overall value aggregation uh, currently happening in the business. I mean, the other thing is, which is the final point, is to look at it from a super fan point of view. And back to Spotify, this is where I was really keen for Spotify to expand on this opportunity. But it's complex because if you're going to move into, I mean, they have all the data to to do the fan first stuff. They're doing all of that. But then if you guys, you have to compete with the tickets business, and that's a hard business to compete with. Merch, that's very, very fragmented. Uh, and you know have all the logistics and fulfillment, so you know, how do you make it profitable? But I think there is lots of opportunity there. And I think the way we're talk, the, the more we're talking about this idea of how you cultivate fandom uh, in a very very competitive world, uh, particularly for the likes of Taylor Swift or you know up and coming artists that have got a big fan base in a, in a in a country. Is I think we are going to see some some interesting um, models arise where we were talking about uh, artists with subscriptions. Uh, I think just managing their communities better, monetizing those like small businesses, small SME global businesses, if you like, and how they arrange the representation around them is going to be uh, different from what it is today. Where it'll still involve managers and labels and streaming platforms, but just different a different formula.
0: Yeah, that's. I mean, there's so many great points what 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 you said. Um, I mean, this could be an hour talk by itself. The value of music and where it's going and how artists gonna monetize their music is 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 it's uh, it's yeah, it's a central it's a central topic. There is some artists who now are taking a chance by saying I'm gonna do a subscription thing. I'm gonna do the, the Patreon way. I'm not gonna try to monetize my music one way. I'm going to monetize my run the jewels. We we, we I'm sure you know Darren. Um, they you know give their music for free and get yeah. way more value for it. Uh, uh, what you know? Did an per- amazing job. Yeah, the perception of value on one end by the fan does not mean immediate monetization. Uh, but uh, and so that takes us to the last point. Um, uh, f- you you're mentioning fan upsells is the money left on the table. So the other way would be how can artists maximize their revenue? uh without uh, uh you know becoming too uh t- without it becoming too much uh, what do you think is the fine line for an artist what should an artist feel like they can do and where should they stop and it just becomes you know not artistic and and just too brutal um that's a big question we're getting from people saying i get money from streaming i get money from live i get money from publishing i want to do those deluxe package and sell hoodies and t-shirts and and I want to tell ticketing and price everything right, and then at the end it just feels too much, and I'm it feels like I'm pushing my fans for consumption, where it needs to be, uh, you know, it's it's still art in the end. So where's the upsell, and where is it uh, that people sh- probably shouldn't try to maximize revenue?
1: Yeah, it's really tough because I think uh, you've got to do all of those things, uh, and yeah, I mean it. I look at ticket prices sometimes and I think, you know, they've crossed the line from being good value to, to being exploitation. Right. And there's some artists I'd love to see live. I'm I'm just not going to pay the hundred, hundred plus dollars to, to do it. I know that's not just the artist, but it's just an example of of not pushing fans too far uh, in terms of exploitation. It's hard because that's the way they're making money. So I think some of these things is about smart marketing and just being, um, as as an artist, having a really really good strategy about what you're about, about portfolio careers to manage that, be it in music, writing feature artists and performers, maybe performing in more than one band, uh, and then also doing other things as well. Uh, I know that's not the solution. I think much of the solution has to be the industry itself making sure it extracts better value from the systems that it has. So it is it's back to that equation that we just talked about about you know the 9.99 price point or the or the nature of the deal. Uh, there's got to be some economic changes to to the way music is is put out there commercially for sure. Um,
0: I I, I want to take a um, um I think this is um, so much information. We're going to try to um, uh, write a little bit on, on those points
1: uh, to have you know to allow people to have the time to digest all, all, all the info. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing the piece. I, I appreciate that because it's uh, uh, you know it's it's a conversation and it's a debate, right? Everybody's got a got a solution, uh, and actually I don't think we're talking about it enough.
0: Yeah, and, and and also what I like is it's the kind of the end of the year and everybody thinks the market is moving fast. My bet is that things are gonna move faster and faster. There you know, the technology innovation is not slowing down. Um and it becomes easier and easier and cheaper to do things that are that were just un, unthinkable a few years ago. Um what I liked about the article that it makes us think about topics that are not, you know, which platform should you use to do a short link? Or which you know, it's not uh, kind of short-term things. There are questions that are still going to be open tomorrow, uh, and next year we could have the same discussion about how do we manage music value, how do you manage linear decline. Those things are not going away tomorrow. Um, all right, I want to kind of wrap it up, and and um, we talked a little bit um, about the song sommelier at the beginning of our exchange. Um, After all this data curation, algorithmic insights discussion, people are going to be surprised about your uh, newest initiative. So can you talk a little bit about the song Sommelier and how you are yourself doing your own counterculture in a way?
1: Yeah, well, yeah, thanks for bringing it up. It's exactly that. So uh, I believe whatever uh, whatever trends take hold of an industry, and, you know, we've got in the moment in, in music, that's volume, it's it's data, it is it is a commoditization that's going on, there's no doubt about it. I'm always interested in counterculture, I've always been interested in counterculture. Uh, I, I'm really interested that young people, you know, under the age of 20, uh, get obsessed with vinyl or even cassette, and and they do want to actually read the liner notes, and they do want to look, they really appreciate um conceptual artwork and cover art and things like that and and the image of the artist that they're following so those things might be found out right now but they are still very important to us as human beings and how we appreciate art how we identify with that type of music or those artists and so i i did the song familiar to bring the art back so we yeah, we call it vital values to playlists right now that's what it is it's playlists plus original artwork which is done uh, to an incredible level by uh, our artist Mick Clark who's who is a proper artist and, yeah, and, and could have one of cool. those guys you know that did album covers in the day you know where you really think through the concept not just not just what might look good and then some writing around it and, and really good curation. So it's kind of uh, it's very universal. It's it's maybe aimed at people who are older and time poor, but actually some very young people really love it as well because they are kind of appreciating what what is currently missing. And essentially, what's missing is is context uh, and a, a, that old-fashioned kind of quality over quantity type uh, ethos or so thinking. Uh, so I put this together. Um, it's doing pretty well. You know, it's it's always going to be niche. But it's amazing to see people find it around the world, which is back to the kind of global thing about how you do things online. I work with Sounds Good, which is a team based in Paris, who have a great player that works on everything except, except Amazon Music. Um, and i told Amazon they need to be on board. Uh, and so it doesn't matter what streaming platform you, you you use, you can discover the playlist through it. So at the moment, that's what we are, but we're going to build it out. It's going to be a curation platform that's going to have uh, events, uh, podcasts, of course, uh, and maybe it's just a way of rethinking music journalism in a way as well. We're
0: gonna so we're so yeah, one, the artworks are um, amazing. Uh, we're gonna link to the Song Sommelier and we'll also link to Sounds Good. Um they happen to be French, so uh we'll we'll give them an extra push. Yeah. Uh cool. Josquin, the CEO, is an amazing guy and their product has been used by hundreds of thousands of people, either making playlists or media uh pushing the embedded player on their websites and so um, millions of people have listened to music using sounds good without even knowing yeah. uh,
1: that there is a third party between them and the platform. Um, but also when you're using an app like that, a player app, it's the way it looks is so much better than a widget for, from any of the current platforms, right? That you can put the art into the player. It looks beautiful. You can, you can throw it around the web uh, and, and I think what those guys have done is, is really cool.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, and there's such like, there's a community part to what they're doing. Cause it's a bunch of people who love music. Um, so there's, you know, people from blogs yeah. and radios and brands and people like you and just gen- like normal fans and, uh, artists and yeah, um, it's a great way to share music across different platforms in a highly fragmented yeah. world. Um, all right, so to wrap it up, I have two questions that I always ask everybody. Um, question number one, what would you, what advice would you give a young manager or an artist trying to make in the industry? Um, the artist or the manager doesn't have a massive team. It's insane the amount of possibilities the of things they could be doing to try to push their song forward. What's the kind of, you know, not generic one, two, three steps, uh, but, you know, what can we tell those types of, of people who... Um, maybe don't know what to start with
1: yeah um yeah it's tough it's there's so many choices to make um and so much competition i think ultimately let's say you you know you've got a good product and you believe in what you're doing that's you know i think you have to really look at that hard and know that you have something special beyond that it's like where do you place it so it's what in marketing, you know, we still don't talk about it enough, uh, it's positioning. So what, it, what type of artist are you? Is it, a, is it from a post-punk band to a new take on electronic pop? What are you bringing to that particular community? Uh, who do you know in that community? So where are you gonna fit? This is where collectives, collectives have been so successful. You know, jazz collectives, Afro pop collectives. If you can be part of that because you're bringing different form of expression, but you're somehow also joining, you're adding to the to the whole. Uh, I think that's important. So, what is your positioning in that culture? Um, then, you know, I, I think taking your time. I mean, ultimately, patience. You can at the moment. you, you you're in a position where you can put songs out. If you really believe in what you do, you can put songs out, two or three tracks on your own. Maybe work with a manager, maybe work with with a, a collective sponsor. Get some feedback, um, get some feedback, know which which tracks are resonating, how you get some idea of how you wanna build that audience so that when you come to have people approach you or you're seeking representation, you just have a much stronger feel about what it is that you're about. Uh, You know, don't have anybody push you in a certain direction. I think that the artists that I look at now that I'm really impressed by, often they're really young. I mean, there's people like Sam Fender has kind of brought Bruce Springsteen style rock back to uh, a generation of people under 20. That proves to me that people want to hear that type of music. Again, it's very human. To someone like Sudan Archives who's making a really different kind of hip hop uh, or r and b rather with with violin and you know all of that kind of really grand arrangements to it they're just bringing something different and they're probably driving that creatively. I can't see anybody pushing those people around. Um, advice yes um, but but not trying to push them in one direction or another they're, they're, they're too strong in what they do in what they do.
0: So essentially, almost saying it's there is room for so many types of music, and niche doesn't really mean small today. Um, having a singular voice and and pushing that forward rather than trying to fit uh, is actually sometimes a better way of getting an initial fan base um, um, for sure. Um, all right, to wrap it up, the question that makes people think the most, what would you tell the nineteen year old Keith if you met him today? What advice would you give yourself?
1: Uh, don't mix your drinks. <laughs> Not a bad one. No, I, um, I would say, particularly if you are, yeah, everybody's different, but what drives me is is progress and new thinking uh, and all of that. So, I think, you know, I wasn't 19, but going back to when I joined the industry, I was actually 30 when I started the IFPI. It's not about what you know. Expertise is very overrated. In, in the environment that you and I have discussed right now, expertise is overrated. What's underrated is listening, uh, better conversations, better conversations. Making sure you are good to work with and you appreciate other people and getting, finding your people, getting the people around you that you know you can trust and you think they're good and they're going to drive you. Um, communication. Those are the things to figure out. It's, it's not about what you think you can do and how much you know. That doesn't matter. You have to work with other people.
0: Amen. Um, well, thanks so much for your time, man. Um, we have been in touch for a few years by email, but we had never talked. So it was great to get to know you yeah. better on this uh, very specific more format. I'll see you soon in London uh, when I come. Uh, and be well, we'll link to all of the good stuff in the in the um, below the interview.
1: Yeah, and I'm looking out for the next moves from Soundcharts and wish you guys good luck. And you know where I am if you need a helping hand, if you wanna if you wanna chat, I'm right here.
0: For sure. Speak soon, man. Bye-bye. All right, David. Goodbye.